When people fall, do they not get up again? If they go astray, do they not turn back? Yet there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for my poor people. This is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah was born in the year 645. He felt God calling him to be a prophet when he was only 18. At 18 years of age, he had the courage to charge into the very presence of King Josiah and tell him that if the southern tribes, called Judah, did not turn again to their one true God, the same fate that had befallen the northern tribes would befall them as well. He worked for 40 long years at that task, and when he was 58, he saw the dreaded Babylonians come. They did, in fact, lay siege to the city of Jerusalem and finally breach the walls and destroy the city. Jeremiah was whisked away by his friends south to escape the Babylonians to Egypt where he died. This text today is about weeping, about crying. My hope is gone. My heart is sad. Is this the word of Jeremiah or is this the word of God? Dr. Patrick Miller says, you have to remember that Jeremiah believes he was speaking for God, that God was speaking through him. And can any of us deny that God's anguish would certainly be more than that of Jeremiah? So if Jeremiah is heart sick, if Jeremiah's joy is gone over the fate that has befallen his people, surely God Almighty is grieving over his people. I've underlined four things here. Number one, when people fall down, Jeremiah said, when they go astray, implying that people do fall down, people do go astray. When Gail and I have the privilege of walking through some of the great museums of the world, we've discovered those artists that we particularly like. And so often I walk left, she walks right, and if one of us sees one of those artists that we like very much, we'll whisper to the other, come over and take a look. You can now get audio guides in most of the great museums that will tell you more about a specific painting. Just punch the button and they'll tell you. Punch the number you like and it will tell you. Most of the museums you see put paintings that are not quite so valuable right along with paintings that are very valuable. You decide which ones speak best to you. One of our favorites is Caravaggio. Caravaggio was born in a little village just outside Milano in 1571. This was the time of one of the great plagues. His father was an architect in this little town, so they were above average in economic well-being. But when Caravaggio was only six, his father died in the great plague. By the time Caravaggio was 13, he knew he wanted to be an artist. 
And he knew there was a former pupil of Titian who was nearby, and he took his meager inheritance and sought out the advice and tutoring of this famed pupil. He studied for years, but he knew the real action was in Rome. When he was 20, he started south to Rome, and by the time he was 21, he was there. He spent long hours in the Sistine Chapel looking at these magnificent paintings of Michelangelo. And then he began to paint more and more and more. At first, people were not sure they liked Caravaggio because he had grown up in the time of the Great Plague. He had lost his father when he was only six. He had now spent everything he had for the schooling that he had. He had been tricked and treated and mistreated by people who had more. Some of his first paintings showed how people who had more tricked people who had less. But another thing they weren't sure about, whether they really liked or not, was the fact that everyone in his day who was painting great figures from the Bible always painted them immaculately dressed, coiffed, and he painted them with dirty fingernails. When he painted them, he painted them with dirty fingernails. He painted them with dirty feet as if someone really had walked a long way in sandals on a road that was not paved. And one of the ones that really got their ire before he died at age 39 was a painting called The Death of the Virgin. Mary, of course, the Holy Mother. People first thought, this is magnificent, this is really wonderful. And then someone said, wait a second, I know that face. It was a prostitute who had drowned in the Tiber River a few weeks before. Now, he wasn't saying the Holy Mother was a prostitute, but he was saying that as much as people venerated the Holy Mother, this young woman who had drowned in the Tiber was also a daughter of God, a person of worth, a person of value, a person whose death they should grieve. When people fall, when people go astray, and they do fall, and they do go astray, what should they do? Number two, he tells you, when people fall, do they not get up? When people go astray, do they not turn back? Turn back, this wonderful word in Hebrew that we usually translate repent, but it literally means to turn or to return. Come back to the one who created you, to the one who wants to help you up, to the one who wants to get you back on the right path that one. Last weekend, our whole country was saturated with news of the 10th anniversary of 9-11. You know that I and a number of you participated in the special service at the BOK Arena last Sunday afternoon. But even before that and after that, I'd seen a number of special programs on television. I'm sure you had as well, recounting what happened 10 years before. You remember, of course, that of the almost 3,000 people who died in the Twin Towers, they had come from more than 30 different countries. A number of them were from Great Britain. And 10 years ago, the person who stood at the memorial service in Great Britain for their subjects who had died there was their prime minister, Tony Blair. And his last sentence of his remarks was a quotation from Thornton Wilder's 
The Bridge of San Luis Rey. Remember that novel? Uh, that's an old one. 1927. If you haven't read it, the title may sound like something out of a war. World War I, World War II, like a bridge too far. It's not about war at all. The very first sentence tells you what it's about. The most beautiful, strongest, most magnificent bridge in all of Peru crashed and five people died. Thornton Wilder, the same one who did the play, Our Town, theorizing about life and death and how close to the living or the dead and the dead to the living, he wrote the bridge of San Luis Rey of this beautiful, magnificent bridge in Peru that crashed and five people went to their death. One of the key characters in the novel is a Roman Catholic priest who's still struggling with that old question, do bad things happen to good people or do people get what they deserved? Who were these five people? What brought them to the bridge all at that particular moment? And so a good part of the book is his delving into the lives of those five people. Of course, he finds no answer there. There's absolutely nothing connecting them to this tragedy. They just happened to be on the bridge at the wrong time when it fell. But Thornton Wilder says there were people, good Catholic people, who suddenly found a need to go to confession people who suddenly were crossing themselves and saying their prayers, even maids who took bracelets they had stolen back to the women from whom they had stolen them. There was a sense that 30 minutes before, I crossed that bridge. 30 minutes later, I intended to cross that bridge. That could have been me. I could have been the one on that bridge when it fell. The idea is when people fall, do they not get up? When people go astray, do they not turn and come back? Do they not go to confession? Do they not tell wrongs in their hearts so that they may come back to the one who created? Number three, yet I went to the vineyard, no grapes. I went to the tree, no figs. There is no fruit there in Israel. In these remaining tribes called Judah, I don't see the fruits that God expects from his people. Richard Cassidy has just written a new book called The Emperor and the Saint about two men who lived at the same time more than 800 years ago. Yes, in the late 1100s, one was called Frederick II. When he was one year old, he was named King of Sicily. When he was two, he was named King of Germany. And when he was 20, he was named Holy Roman Emperor. He was fluent in six languages, he was as well-educated and polished as anyone of his era could have been. Yet his whole life was disaster. It was a coming apart of the way of life he espoused. There would be no children, no grandchildren of Frederick II who would assume the throne. 
that way of life was passing. And the saint who lived at the same time, a fellow named Francis in a small village called Assisi, whose father was a well-known merchant who had done quite well. Francis, who grew up wearing the finest material that his father could afford, that his mother could have crafted into beautiful garments, who one day stood in the middle of that little village up on a hill and dropped these expensive clothes and walked away in his underwear. I know where he went. One beautiful afternoon in Assisi, I climbed more than four miles up into the hills to the caves where Francis went. Oh yeah, they're still there after more than 800 years. I was so intent on where I was stepping, where I was walking, going up this hill. I'd never been there before. I saw people coming down the hill, no one else going up the hill. And then, just as I got to the top, boom, thunder, lightning, striking everywhere, people now running down the hill, I went in the cave. I was all alone. Everyone else had gone. When you walk farther, you find a little carved-out place where one of those who followed Francis could say his prayers, read the scriptures. You go a little farther, another little carved-out space for another who had followed Francis, who had come to pray, to read the holy scriptures. One little cell place after another, solitary for these who became known as the friars, the monks. And guess what? More than 800 years later, the Franciscans spread around the globe. Francis, the saint, one whose life bore fruit. At every place these friars started a new residence, he would tell them, save some room for the flowers. They were supposed to be self-sufficient, plant vegetables, have sheep, have cattle maybe, but save some room for the flowers. Plant the flowers. Be kind to the animals. You remember the emperor whose empire was passing away and the saint whose work has endured for more than 800 years. When the vines bear grapes and the trees have figs. Number four. Is the king no longer in Zion? Is the one at the burning bush no longer present? Is there no balm in Gilead? This was a rosin secreted by trees where the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh had settled east of the Jordan. Has it all dried up? No more balm for healing? Well, yes, there is. One of the scholars I read this week said, We believe that the heart of God is tuned to the wavelength of human beings that God is listening all the time, listening for one who would raise a hand like the little girl I described last Sunday, a 15-month-old who had learned just to raise a hand and say, help, help. Debbie McCumber has written recently about Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach was born in 1685. He became an organist. He was an organist of some renown, but not everyone knew he was also a great composer. Oh, the people of his church knew he was a composer. He was a working musician who labored week after week to write a new prelude, a new offertory, 
a new post lute. We have today more than 200 of his cantatas. We have more than 200 of his major organ works, but many of them were not known outside the town where he played while he was still living. We have two of the greatest pieces of Christian music ever written, the St. John Passion and the St. Matthew Passion. But the St. Matthew Passion was presented there in his hometown. Received no great acclaim. He reworked it. They presented it again. Still no great acclaim. He reworked it. And then he died. And as far as we know, no one heard it for more than a hundred years until a fellow named Felix Mendelssohn found it and performed the St. Matthew Passion again. And people's hearts were deeply moved. Deeply moved. Those who study Johann Sebastian Bach find that at the beginning of each composition there are two letters. Rather strange because they don't really appear in musical score normally. J, J. And at the very end, three letters. S, D, G. And someone finally realized that this German also knew the language of the church, which was Latin. And the J.J., as he began his week's work, was Jesu Yuva, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. And at the end, soli Deo Gloria, only to God the glory. Jeremiah would have said, that's good enough. 